This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, what a pleasure it is to see all of you here and to be with you. The title of this talk is The Light of Faith and the Light of Reason. What does it mean to speak of faith as illuminating the human mind? Isn't faith more like a leap in the dark than the reception of some light? According to many prominent Enlightenment thinkers, only reason, only philosophy, has legitimate claim to the title of enlightenment. So Immanuel Kant argues that religious dogmas are an obstacle to the enlightenment of man's mind. Kant writes, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. And again, dogmas and formulas those mechanical instruments for rational use, or rather misuse, of man's natural endowments are the ball and chain of his perpetual immaturity. Only a few, by cultivating their own minds, have succeeded in freeing themselves from immaturity and in continuing boldly on their way. So that's Immanuel Kant. At least in the Anglo-American world, this enlightenment perspective has become dominant, I think, even among university faculty, where it's sometimes assumed that science and faith are opposed or that faith is irrational or irrational and that it might even involve a darkening of the mind rather than the freeing of the mind to use all of its powers, yoking the mind to religious dogma rather than allowing the mind to do its work. St. Thomas Aquinas offers a very different understanding of theological faith. So in this talk, I want to focus on an aspect of Aquinas' thought that's not often noted by contemporary scholarship, and that is that for Aquinas, both faith and reason involve God illuminating the human mind, granting the mind a partial participation in the infinite and perfect light that is the divinity itself. So for Aquinas, therefore, the life of faith has a supreme compatibility with the life of reason, and faith opens the mind of the believer to a new supernatural and even mystical way of penetrating the heavens while remaining a pilgrim on earth. So. This talk has two major parts. So this is part one, uh, which is on divine illumination in nature, grace, and glory. So these three modes of divine illumination that Aquinas speaks about. So part one. Aquinas builds his account of faith by starting with the foundational principle that the human being is made to know. And above all, to know the truth about God. Aquinas thinks that's really the highest thing for us to know. And he even talks about this, incidentally, in his treatment of natural law. He says that one of the most basic inclinations, you might say, of the human nature 
is not just to preserve itself in being and to reproduce and to uh, live in community, to protect your physical life, but also to know the truth. He thinks that's an aspect of our nature. But above all, this is the truth about God, and that's even true with respect to uh, the natural law. But at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas gives this a theological perspective as well, and he says, quote, man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends on the knowledge of this truth, the truth about God. So this capacity to know God, and hence also to love him, is precisely where Aquinas locates the image of God in the human creature. We are in the image of God insofar as we are made as creatures capable of knowing and loving God. So you don't resemble God by the features of your face, the way you might resemble your mother or your father. You resemble God by your spiritual capacity to know and to love. Because God is not a body, but God is a spirit who knows and loves. So for Aquinas, there are three ways or degrees of the image of God in the human being. First, that man has a natural aptitude or potentiality to know and love God. So there's a, a kind of potency there. Second, that the human being begins actually to know and love God, although imperfectly, in this life. So that's a higher dimension of the image of God. You have the, the root capacity by virtue of being human. And then when you actually start exercising that capacity, you've moved up to imitate God in a higher way because you're actually doing what you were made capable of by your nature. And then the third level is that you know and love God perfectly in the glory of heaven. So there's these three degrees. Nature, then knowing God actually, especially in the life of grace that we live in this world, and then knowing God perfectly in the light of heaven, and that's the light of glory or the life of glory. Now, it's not, this is reasonably well known, and probably you've heard this before. But what's not often noted is that Aquinas connects these three degrees of the divine image in the human creature with three lights by which God illuminates the human mind. So the light of natural reason, the light of grace, and the light of glory. So the human creature is made in the image of God because the human being participates in this divine light in these, or can participate in these three different ways. So let's stop, talk first about the light of reason. And this may also be stuff that you've heard before, uh, but we'll just kind of quickly run through some key elements here. So with respect to the light of reason, uh, recent scholarship has also come to a new appreciation of the role of divine illumination in Aquinas' account of natural human knowledge. And that's not often, often Aquinas is not spoken of in this way because people think of St. Bonaventure when you talk about illumination. 
So uh, we want to distinguish Aquinas' view from the Franciscan view of St. Bonaventure, being that we're at a Franciscan facility, you know, we can do homage to St. Bonaventure by acknowledging his contribution and then perhaps disagreeing with it. So uh, for Aquinas, it's true that the human mind is endowed with the light of natural reason as its own stable possession in virtue of its rational nature. Okay, so the light of reason really is given to the human nature and it's not just like uh, given a fresh infusion at every moment of making an act of understanding. It's there. It's a stable power of your nature. That's how people usually distinguish Aquinas from St. Bonaventure. But don't forget, uh, or, or we should say, this, this statement about Aquinas must be affirmed in harmony with another truth, that the light of reason is an illumination from God. And it is continuously granted to the human creature by God in the same creative act by which God gives us our rational nature and sustains it in being. So Aquinas' view is actually that God is always illuminating us. So it's not the theory of St. Bonaventure. I'll get to that in just a second. But it, it is, uh, it is a, a theory of divine illumination. This is a quote uh, from Aquinas. As the air is illuminated by the presence of light, such that if it is absent, it immediately becomes dark, so also the mind is illuminated by God. Okay, just think about that for a moment. Like you have uh, a room that's filled with sunlight because the curtains are open, but you close the curtains or you close the shutters and the room becomes black because you need a kind of continuous influx of light in order for the air in that room to be enlightened. So also the mind. And he goes on. And hence, God is always causing the natural light in the soul. Not one gift of light now and another at another time, but the same light. For he is not only the cause of its coming to be, but also of its continuing in being. In this way, therefore, God continuously is at work in the mind as he causes in it the natural light and directs it. Okay, so it's, it's on precisely this point that Aquinas differs from St. Bonaventure. Because Bonaventure sees the divine illumination of our mind as distinct from God's concurrent causality of our nature. So, to put it another way, for Bonaventure, the divine illumination of the mind is extrinsic to the nature itself. Like God has created this nature and then he gives it light, he gives it light, he gives it light. As if needing it from outside in a certain sense. Whereas for Aquinas, this illumination is intrinsic. It's given in the gift of the nature. It's part and parcel with God's gift to us of our nature and his holding of that nature in being. So you might hopefully think here in terms of primary and secondary causality, if you're familiar with that, that distinction. So at every moment, God impresses the light of natural reason on our minds so that an act of understanding my natural reason is both caused by our minds and caused by God's concurrent first causality. 
Aquinas' metaphysics of participation allows him to frame this constant illumination as a participation in God's light. So here we see that Aquinas is synthesizing Aristotelian anthropology and epistemology with an Augustinian illuminationism and also with what you find in Proclus, in Pseudo-Dionysius, a kind of cosmology of a hierarchy of natures. So it's really interesting. Aquinas is putting a whole bunch of things together in this theory. So here, here's how he puts it in the Summa Theologiae. We are said to see all things in God and to judge all things according to him, insofar as we know and judge all things through a participation in his light. Indeed, even the light of reason itself is a certain participation of the divine light. Just as we are said to see and judge all sensible things in the sun, that is, by the sun's light. And in fact, Aquinas says elsewhere that all three lights of the intellect, the light of reason, the light of grace, and the light of glory, the light of glory is what you get in heaven with the beatific vision, all three of these lights are participations in the divine light and are derived from the divine light. Now, Aquinas talks about these three lights as having different strengths. So, for example, he says that, quote, the light of the natural light of the intellect is strengthened through the infusion of the light of grace. And the light of grace perfects the light of nature. That's the end of the quote. And then he also says that the light of glory is stronger and more perfect yet than the light of grace. So this is another quote. The superabundant light of glory puts to flight every shadow, not, however, by taking away nature, but by perfecting the intellectual light, which is participated in us defectively by our nature. That's interesting. Our, our nature by itself participates, but in a deficient or an imperfect way. And that's perfected as we move up the chain, you might say. So we might think of these three lights in terms of the mind's ascending participation in the infinite and perfect light who is God himself. So we start from the partial and actually after the fall, the wounded and defective participation according to nature. And then we move through a higher participation according to grace. And then we reach the most perfect perfection in the participation, which is by way of glory, the light of glory. So we want to distinguish these lights. We don't want to just say that they're like all the same. They're not the same. They're distinct gifts but we can see that they're related to each other and they're related in a hierarchy, in a hierarchical form of participation in the divine light itself. So the light of reason is in itself a weaker light or Aquinas explains more precisely, it's weaker in us because of the way that we as rational animals have a rational soul that is the form of a body. 
So the natural light of reason in us is adapted to and conditioned by our bodiliness. Since we encounter reality first through our bodies, like through your senses, and then our mind abstracts from what we encounter to come to understand it in an immaterial way, right? That's what understanding involves. It involves not dependence on material sensations, but actually taking those sensations and then somehow understanding them. So we understand what is universal and intelligible by abstracting it from matter. So just as light make the aspects of an object visible to our eye, so that our eye perceives whatever is visible of the object, so also the natural light of reason illuminates what is intelligible in what we perceive, so that our mind sees deeper into that reality than sense perception alone is able to do. So physical light gives us through our eyes a certain access to the reality that is around us by a sensation, vision, which is different from touch and hearing. We learn about the world differently by vision than we do by touch and hearing. And likewise, when the light of reason shines on the phantasm in our minds that our intellect has produced from what we sense, our mind grasps something that is of an essentially different order than our bodily senses. The mind sees what is intelligible in what we have sensed. So the light of reason really does give us something new and of a different order than like physical light. And there is no, uh, now this is, this is going to be important when we talk about faith. Notice that there's no anterior explanation or justification on which the evidence of this intellectual grasp rests beyond the light of reason itself. Like, we don't have a further explanation behind that. In the same way that when you see something, you just immediately, like, you see it in a way that doesn't require a, a long explanation. A picture is worth a thousand words. So in the same way, Aquinas says, there is also a supernatural light of grace and by this light, which is a higher light, a higher participation in God's light, one grasps something of a different order than what senses can grasp and also than what natural reason can grasp. So you see how we're, we're kind of moving up the chain here. In Aquinas's view, the light of faith aids our mind to, quote, know those things which natural reason cannot attain to. And these are realities that are, in fact, more knowable in themselves, but they're less known to us. Because our embodied intellects only know naturally 
what we can encounter through and abstract from our senses. So the light of reason is connected to our bodiliness and it works with our sense perceptions. But the light of faith is not related in the same way to those things. It gives us a way of knowing that is in a certain way above the way of knowing of a bodily creature. Our minds are able to be opened to this by grace, but they're not naturally made for it. I mean, uh, I shouldn't put it that way. They're not naturally capable of it by their own power. So we could say in a sense they're made for it, and in a sense they don't have it by nature. So above all, faith elevates our mind so that we can know God himself as an end which surpasses the comprehension of reason. And just as no further proof of a material reality is needed when we see it in the light of the sun, you just, you see it. So, Aquinas would say, no further proof is needed for a supernatural reality when it's grasped in the light of faith. But of course, when you're talking to somebody who's in the dark or to someone who's blind, they don't, they don't see it. And so you have to use a lot of words to explain it. And all of your words never quite add up to the experience of just seeing it. And likewise, the same kind of thing happens with those who have the light of faith and are trying to talk to those who don't. There's also a kind of irreducible gap there that you, you need in a certain way to have that light. Okay, these three lights, natural reason, grace or faith, and uh, glory are given to us so that, Aquinas says, we can ascend higher and higher in contemplation. In other words, we're all made to become contemplatives. That's interesting. There's, in a way, the, the Christian vocation is a vocation to be a contemplative. And in heaven, you will be a contemplative, God willing. I mean, God willing that we all, that we all arrive there together, we will be contemplatives together. Okay, so we've been talking about parallel sets of triplets. There's a threefold image of God, the threefold imago Dei. There's a threefold light of the intellect. There's a threefold participation in the divine light. And Aquinas says in that text that we just skipped, there's a threefold contemplation of God. There can be a natural contemplation, there can be a, a contemplation by grace, and then there's the contemplation by glory. Now, I want to highlight these, these triplets because by doing that, we can better grasp how for Aquinas, the special light granted to the human being in grace holds a key place in Aquinas' overarching synthesis of the dispensation of salvation, by which the human being who is created to know God is healed of the effects of sin and is brought to share fully in God's own divine light. In other words, when Aquinas uses the language of light and illumination to talk about grace, he's doing something more than just giving us a useful metaphor or an, even an, a kind of elegant image. He's actually integrating what sometimes is a rather technical account of the act of faith into a much larger theological synthesis. And in doing this, 
He's giving us a sense of the depths of the meaning contained in many of the scriptural texts, rich texts, that talk about the mystery of salvation and sanctification in terms of light and illumination. There's lots of texts like that in the Bible. Okay, so now we've come to part two of my talk, and that's about Aquinas on the light of faith. So now, having, having talked about the, the, the three-fold uh, schema, we're going to focus on the middle one. So for Aquinas, there are two preconditions for an act of supernatural faith. First, something has to be proposed to a person for belief. And second, the person must judge that what is proposed is believable or credible. So those are two preconditions. And only if you have them do you then get to the third moment where the person actually can believe. And it's in that, it's in that final moment that we need to appeal to an illumination of the light of faith. Or, as Aquinas puts it, as God moving one inwardly to assent to the truth that was proposed by an act of faith. Okay, so let's talk about that first precondition just very briefly. Uh, there's plenty of Thomistic Institute talks that talk about this at more uh, detail, so I'll just refer you to those um, if, you have, uh, if you're interested in that, or we can talk about it in the Q&A. So the first precondition is that something has to be proposed for belief. So Christian faith is founded on God revealing himself. And after the apostolic age, it's founded on someone bearing witness to that revelation, above all, that revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm setting aside here the very important but complicated issue of implicit faith, which can really exist in someone who has not yet heard the gospel in a credible way. So that may, in fact, include a lot of people who are not Christians it's possible that they could have an implicit faith, but that's another topic, and it, will, it would take us an hour to talk about that, so I'm just going to kind of bracket that and acknowledge that it's, a, it's another issue. So this exterior or public revelation of the gospel, Aquinas would say, you know, that's already a supernatural gift from God. It's a necessary prelude to faith, but it's not interior, it's in a way, it's public, it's exterior. And it's not what Aquinas is talking about when he's talking about the light of faith. Okay, that's the first precondition. Now the second one. Once the gospel is proposed, the person who hears it needs to judge that what, what is proposed is credible, believable, reasonable. And because God is the source of both faith and of reason, Aquinas argues that faith and reason must be eminently compatible because God can't be the source of a contradiction or of error. So Aquinas is very confident that reason, when rightly employed, will never be able to demonstrate that a claim made by faith is false. That's probably stuff that you know very well. He also holds that even though many of the truths of the, of the faith, for example, that God is, is triune, these truths are neither provable nor disprovable by philosophy. But believing them is eminently reasonable. Okay, so some truths 
that faith bears witness to are provable by philosophy, that, that God exists. Other truths, like God is triune, are not provable by philosophy, nor disprovable by philosophy, but they are believable and, in fact, reasonable to believe, Aquinas thinks. Okay, what makes them believable or credible? Here, Aquinas gives three overlapping reasons. First, he thinks faith depends on certain truths that can, that can be proven by reason, such as that God exists, that God is one, and so forth. Aquinas calls these the preambles of faith, preambula fide. So faith presupposes these truths, and interestingly, Aquinas says, faith needs them to be proved by reason. So Aquinas actually thinks it's important that we be able to do those proofs. Okay, second, Aquinas uses St. Augustine's definition of believing, which is to think with assent. So you think a proposition to be true unconditionally, even though you don't see the truth of it directly, because you believe the testimony of another. And Aquinas thinks that's a reasonable thing to do and that we do it all the time, we do it every day. When, for example, we accept as true the date of our birth, like how, how can you verify that independently from your own, like you have to depend on someone else telling you, basically. Your birth certificate is just another a way of like writing down somebody's testimony about what day that happened, or you talk to your parents. Like you cannot actually determine that date for yourself. We do this when we believe in the existence of a city we've never visited and, you know, many other things. So Aquinas thinks it's reasonable to do that and to, to be a, a universal skeptic about things like that, he thinks is, is silly. It's not, not reasonable. And in fact, people don't normally do that. Finally, third, what makes these truths believable Aquinas thinks it's reasonable to believe what Christianity proposes to us because of the special signs or proofs that God gave to confirm the words of Christ and of the apostles. So these are things like Christ's miracles, Jesus' resurrection, the miracles worked by the apostles, the continued existence of the church through time, its stability, its constant bearing witness to the same truths. Okay, here we're no longer talking about reason demonstrating the truths themselves, but rather reason recognizing that God, who is supremely truthful, is confirming what is proposed to us for belief. He's confirming by these signs. And when we take these three reasons together, we can say that for Aquinas, not only does philosophy have a relative autonomy in its rightful sphere, but that faith itself depends on reason to demonstrate the preambles of faith, to rightly assess the credibility of the witnesses who propose something to us for our belief. So it's actually important to safeguard the integrity of reason for the sake of making an act of faith, according to Aquinas. Okay, but that doesn't mean that faith is just an act of reason. No, you need that as a kind of uh, foundation that then God builds on 
or maybe that's not the right way to put it. You need the light of reason functioning well, and then you are raised up by the gift of grace to a higher order and the light of faith. So let's now talk about the details of the light of faith for Aquinas. Many people hear the same gospel message. In fact, even in the time of Jesus, many people heard the preaching of Jesus. Some people believed, some didn't. And even today, some people believe when they hear the message and others don't. In order to make a properly supernatural act of faith, Aquinas thinks that it's necessary for God to infuse the light of faith into the mind, by which the hearer of the message judges the message to be certainly true, and so believes it, and believes it without qualification, even though he doesn't himself see the evidence for it. So there's another text here. Uh, it's text G, which I'm also going to skip uh, just in the interests of time. But it's Aquinas describing the light of faith along these lines. But there's another uh, text. So that was from uh, that, that text that we're skipping is from his uh, commentary on Boethius, which is an early text in Aquinas' career. And I'm just going to jump to the next text, which is a... Um, which is from the Summa. It's a later text, and it's a little more concise. Okay, so uh, if the mind doesn't directly see the truth that's to be believed, in what sense can we call faith a light? That's maybe uh, the question we might want to ask. Because the Enlightenment cr critics might here say, aha, you know, faith doesn't involve an illumination. It's actually darkening the mind because you don't see so does faith really leaves the, leave the mind in darkness? Aquinas' mature teaching gives an, a distinctive answer. It's, it was quite distinctive among medieval theologians. He's just explained that in faith, neither your bodily senses nor your intellect see their object directly. And then he adds, the light of faith does make us see what we believe. For just as by the habits of the other virtues, man sees what is becoming to him in respect of that habit, so by the habit of faith, the human mind is directed to assent to such things as are becoming to a right faith and not to others. So Aquinas' key insight here is, the, is that the light of faith as a supernatural virtue or habitus infused into the mind puts the believer's mind in real contact with the object of faith, which is God. God under the aspect of first truth. And so having received this light, this supernatural light, the believer now has a real relationship with God and hence a new sense, a new sense of who God is and what he is like. It's a supernatural sense. It cannot be reduced to bodily senses or to the light of reason. But it does really give you contact with God. So this new capacity to judge rightly 
in matters of faith works like the other virtues. So let's think about that for a minute, how the other virtues help you to judge rightly. For example, a man with the virtue of chastity has a sense by which he can judge whether a relationship is endangering his chastity. Now, this maybe uh, is not totally obvious to you unless you've already been growing in the virtue of chastity. But the idea here is that someone who is growing in the virtue of chastity can get a kind of sense of what is chaste and what is not chaste. And as you grow in chastity, your perception of that is refined and improved. And you may not be able to fully explain why this relationship is not a particularly chaste relationship, but you see somehow that it's not consistent with the virtue of chastity. Faith works in the same way. Although the light of faith does not add new intelligible content to the mind, so the intellect still needs what is proposed for belief to come from the outside. Like you still have to hear the message, right? The intellect still needs that, but it now has a new light by which it can judge rightly what it hears to determine whether it corresponds to the truth about God whom the believer knows and is in contact with. So in this sense, the light of faith really does illuminate the mind, even though the believer doesn't see the object of faith directly. Okay, so that's, uh, it's kind of strange because it's a light that still in some sense leaves us in the darkness or obscurity of believing. So it's raising us to a, a higher mode of living that isn't the mode of living that we have through our bodily senses. And our mind like wants to see, and when we only know by faith, we're still a little dissatisfied because we, we want to see directly and we don't yet, but we really do know something insofar as we're able to judge what we hear to be true. So a few articles later after the text that I was just quoting, Aquinas formulates an objection to an argument that we find today on the lips of contemporary skeptics. The objection goes like this. Faith is dangerous because in faith you abandon what is characteristic of the life of reason. And when Aquinas replies to this, he extends his account of how the Christian believer judges, judges rightly by the light of faith. And this is text I on your handout. Just as man assents to first principles by the natural light of his intellect, so also a virtuous man, by the habit of virtue, judges rightly of what pertains to that virtue. Likewise, in this way, by the light of faith divinely infused in man, he assents to the things that pertain to faith, and not to their contraries. So the light of faith seems to function in a manner analogous to how we grasp the truth of the first principles of natural reason. 
You don't prove the principle of non-contradiction. You know what the principle of non-contradiction is? That something cannot both be and not be in the same respect and at the same time. You can't prove that. It's self-evident to the intellect endowed with a natural light of reason. If you, if you don't see that, then you can't have any further conversation. In the same way, Aquinas thinks, the believer, when the light of faith is infused into the mind, is able to judge rightly that the primary articles of faith proposed to him should be believed. For example, that God is our ultimate happiness and exercises providence over all things. So faith doesn't in, involve an abandonment of reason, nor is it dangerous to assent to what faith proposes to the mind, because it involves bringing our mind higher, giving it a knowledge of higher truths by a higher light. And Aquinas observes elsewhere uh, this, he says, quote, nor should we be surprised if these things are not evident to non-believers who do not have the light of faith. Because neither would the first principles of natural reason be evident without the light of the agent intellect. That is, if you, if you don't have the light of natural reason, the first principles of reason are not self-evident to you either. So try and explaining the principle of non-contradiction to your dog. I mean, as much as you love your dog, he doesn't get it. So it's important to avoid misunderstanding Aquinas on this point. Aquinas doesn't think that faith infuses new cognitive content into the mind. So the light of faith has a specific function. It elevates the mind so that it can assent with certitude to what is proposed for belief, which is known by hearing a witness to the gospel. So Aquinas writes, Faith does not extend to cognition of those things that are believed, but that a man assents with certitude to those things which are known by others. So in other words, faith does not allow you to see directly the object of faith, but by the light of faith, you are able to believe that what God and the blessed see directly is certainly true. So faith gives a kind of implicit cognition by participation in what is known by others. And this is why Aquinas says that the light of faith helps the will of the believer insofar as it, the will moves the intellect to assent to what is proposed for belief. So God, in giving the light of faith, moves the will to move the intellect to assent. So the object of faith is itself luminous, God himself. And faith itself is not obscure, but uh, because God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen, we are not able to approach him. So there are three related ways that Aquinas says faith can be called obscure or dark, according to Aquinas. So the first is by comparison with unbelief on the one hand and glory on the other. The life of the faithful and the just is called light 
in comparison with the impious. Yet this very life of the faithful, when set in contrast to the life of glory, is called dark. Okay, secondly, the obscurity or darkness of faith results from the weakness of our own intellects because our minds are not able to transcend the limitations of our bodily way of knowing while we remain in this life. So our minds want to know in a bodily way what cannot be known in a bodily way, namely God. And then third, faith is obscure because faith doesn't totally remove the imperfections of our weak intellects. So our intellects remain restless. They keep hungering for a clearer vision. The pure light, which is faith, causes ascent. But insofar as that light is not perfectly participated, it does not totally remove the imperfection of the intellect. And so the movement of thought remains restless in it, Aquinas says. So the light of faith allows us to know in a certain sense God himself who is first truth, but we don't know by vision and so we're unsettled. It continues to churn. We're not completely satisfied. The mind wants to know fully. We still feel like we're in a certain darkness. And that's a normal dimension of the experience of faith, Aquinas thinks. So we shouldn't be troubled if questions arise in our mind to which we don't immediately find answers. These are not necessarily doubts, like infidelity, as long as we firmly assent to the truth of the faith. All right, notwithstanding this obscurity and restlessness of faith, Aquinas also teaches that faith has a more powerful and deeper effect on our minds than other sorts of human knowledge, and this also in three ways. We're almost done here. The light of faith penetrates beyond the intellect alone and inflames our hearts. It, it gives us a kind of personal relationship that's what Aquinas is getting at. It's not like just knowing facts about a historical figure. Like you could learn a lot of facts about Napoleon Bonaparte, but it doesn't make Napoleon your friend. But the light of faith doesn't just give you facts about God. It puts you in relationship with him and makes you his friend. Secondly, in the normal case where, where you interpose no obstacle, the infusion of faith comes with the infusion of the other theological virtues of hope and charity. And so this means that you burst into love. So faith is meant to burst forth into love of the one that you know. As you know God to be perfectly good, you love him. And then third, and this is a, a capital teaching of Aquinas that we don't have time to go into, but it's one of my favorite teachings, that when you receive the gift of sanctifying grace, so faith uh, also formed by charity, the Son and the Holy Spirit are really personally present in your soul. So the divine persons dwell in you. And you are brought back to the Father through the Holy Spirit and the Son. So you ascend back to the first principle in, in God, the, the principle without a principle. Okay, so uh, three concluding observations or three truths. 
that are like windows into the heart of Aquinas' theology about faith. God the Father is the fount of light, and the word of God is derived from this font of light who is the Father. So the word reflects the splendor of God. And from that, then, the splendor of the Father's glory, the image of the fontal light, took on our flesh and did many glorious and divine works in this world. The gospel is, therefore, the declaration of this light. Hence, the gospel is also called the knowledge of the brightness of Christ, which knowledge has the power to enlighten. That's Aquinas. So faith comes to us through the illuminating declaration of the gospel, and it is from Christ first that the light of faith comes. Christ, who is the word of God. Christ, who is the image of the Father and the perfect expression of the Father's light. And then Christ gives to us the Holy Spirit, who comes to dwell in us as a source of illumination. And Aquinas thinks that that is the best way to be taught, to be taught by the spirit of truth himself, who is the interior teacher of the soul. Thank you. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think you're right. Um, so the first part of your question, if I understood it, is about participation. What are the modes of participation? Um, so Aquinas identifies different modes of participation. And there's been some scholarly activity on this in the 20th century. It was kind of important to kind of distinguish some of those. Um, and off the top of my head, can I, can I give you the, the accurate answer? I, I maybe can be corrected by the others in the room. Maybe you yourself who could, like, delineate those uh, modes of participation. I think it's like logical participation as a as a species participates in the genus. Then there's um, like uh, the way an uh, an accident or a uh, an accident participates in or a substance participates in an accident. Yeah. So you have like 
whiteness and then you know like this wall goes from being say red to being white and so it's coming to participate in whiteness and then there's uh the way an effect participates in the cause and so the effect so that i think it seems like that's what we're talking about here i think you're right so yes participation is not some uh mystical doctrine that is totally you know esoteric and impossible to like really nail down i think that's what a, i think that is what aquinas means here so uh it's that god is is giving a greater and greater assimilation to himself in these various steps you know the light of reason the light of grace the light of glory and when he gives the highest level i mean maybe it's best to start there uh he understands Aquinas understands the light of glory to be uh, a light strengthening the intellect so that it is able to see God as he is in himself. And without any mediation. So there's no, we're not seeing anything other than God himself. And the reason Aquinas uh, wants to emphasize that about the beatific vision is that if there were some mediation, like you're seeing by means of an image or something, then that image would be infinitely less than God himself, and you wouldn't really be seeing God. So he, Aquinas has a, a distinctive position on this, um, and is very he's very insistent on this point, over against some others in medieval theology who had different views, that the, the beatific vision really does have to be, you see God directly, and so our minds are too weak for that uh, without this, without this, supremely supernatural light. So it's like really, really elevating us. Uh, but obviously that's not a physical light. It's a spiritual power, a spiritual light that he's causing in us. Have I answered your question yeah. on the first part? Now then you asked the second question. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll there, there's one or two other, other questions here. Yeah. Jenny. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there are some, I mean, I'd like to maybe sort through this myself a little further, so maybe I don't have the final answer. But I mean, Aquinas is not a Cartesian, so uh, he doesn't mean that the light of reason is like impeded. Uh, well, he does, he does there say the intelligible light is obscured and impeded by its conjunction with our body. Uh, so what is he, what is he trying to get at? I think what he's trying to get at is light of itself is intelligible, but because of the kind of light that this light of reason is, so I, I'm trying to kind of channel Aquinas here. I'm not like, I, I'm giving you what I think he's trying to say. Um, I think what he's trying to say is light itself is intelligible and what he's, um, when we're talking about a light that illuminates the intelligibility of sensible realities. That's what the light of natural reason is. 
And so it's necessarily connected to our body, and it's also therefore going to be in a certain way limited in its scope, because it's just going to give you like the ability to extract the intelligibility from the, the things that you encounter with your senses. Whereas when you start moving up into higher participations, now there's another gift that you're receiving, which is a really distinct gift. It's analogously the same in the sense that we call it a light, but it's a really distinct gift that no longer is in a way um, dependent on the bodily sensations in the same way. Now, faith obviously does still have a connection with the bodily senses because it depends on, for example, hearing. And faith is also going to require your natural reason to be working properly so that, for example, you can prove the existence of God. And you actually will also need some sense knowledge to get going in those proofs, at least the way Aquinas typically does them, like that you see that things change in the world. And therefore, you construct this proof starting from the knowledge you have of the reality of change. So uh, that presupposes some sense knowledge, but it also is transcending it with the gift of faith. The light of glory, I think, is, is a super excelling light, which no longer is like dependent in the same way on uh, the body. And so your soul can get it before you get your body back. Like when your soul is separated from your body, you can have that light of glory. Then on the last day, you get your body back. Now, what does the body contribute to your vision of God? Actually, nothing directly. But what happens is now there's a kind of overflow from the soul back into the body, from the intellect or the mind back into the body, so that the body also rejoices in the plenitude of divine knowledge so that it's like a more full human experience in a certain way after your, you get your resurrected body. But the resurrected, uh, the resurrected body-soul composite is not depending on the body for the vision of God. Does that answer your question? Well, I'm going to need to listen to it, too, because I feel like I just understood that for the first time in answering your question. So I hope that I hope that I'm right. Uh, I could be wrong. Do we have time? Are we out of time? Well, One more question. Um, uh, well, Michael has been very patiently wanting. Our questions for the afternoon. And we'll have, so if you have a question right now, write it down. We'll have a session called uh, the quad the best, uh, the whatever question you'd like. <laughs> we'll have in, uh, in the afternoon. And so we can go. Uh, restore our bodies at lunch, and uh, let's give a thanks one more time to Father God. Thank you.